0: Welcome to Dystopian Academy, a podcast about the Dystopian Wars game by War Cradle. My name is David Boren. You can contact me on Facebook in the Sturginium Lounge Facebook group, which is the central place to discuss the game online. Since this is the first episode, let me give a brief introduction. I first got into miniatures gaming with War Machine many years ago, shortly after the game first came out, and since then have branched out into a lot of different miniatures games. When Spartan Games first came out with their fantasy naval game, Uncharted Seas, I got really into that and played it quite a lot. Following up with Uncharted Seas, they came out with Firestorm Armada, which was our spaceship game sharing the same core engine, and then the first edition of Dystopian Wars, again sharing the same core game engine, but now set in an alternate history Victorian sci-fi or dieselpunk setting with giant, clunky, ironclad ships mixed with advanced technology. This took off kind of beyond their wildest dreams. It became by far the most popular of the three games, eclipsing the other two, and really kind of putting them a bit into the shadow. It went through a couple different editions, ending with uh, version 2.5 before Spartan finally went out of business. I'm not going to get into a lot of that history. There's a blog online that talks about that elsewhere. What I loved about the naval games, and this applies whether it's naval at sea or in space or whatever, is just kind of the feel of it. You know, you get a lot of customization of your force, it has a very different pace than land games, there's a lot more planning and uh, long-term thinking involved than in most of the land-based games where, honestly, troops can evaporate extremely fast and you just can't plan ahead because the, the table changes so much in a single turn. So fast-forwarding to present day, War Cradle bought the rights to all the old Spartan games, and they're working on re-releasing those, starting with the Dystopian Wars because it was the most popular, but they're also currently doing beta testing for a new version of Firestorm Armada. If you're interested in checking that out, take a look at the Black Ocean Facebook group, and you can find everything there. It's possible they'll be re-releasing other old Spartan games in the future, but at this point these are the only ones that have been officially announced. If you compare the old Dystopian Wars to the new one, there's been significant streamlining and cleaning things up. I think almost all the changes, uh, I would have to say, are beneficial. One thing that they did do is the old Dystopian Wars was mixed land and sea, but the new game just does the naval part. There's still air units. You've still got flying things. There'll be planes and zeppelins and all that kind of deal. But the land component is gone. That will probably be split into a separate game later on. This is really kind of a good move because it was always something that sounded way better on paper than it worked out in reality. You might see something like a shore battery or something like that in the new game. Just speculating. But you're not going to see tanks and ground troops and stuff like that. That'll be for another game. So let's talk for a moment about what's in the box. And by the box, I'm specifically talking about the two-player starter here, the hunt for the Prometheus. I want you to know what's in there and more importantly, what's not in there that you should be aware of. So you get pretty much a good deal out of this. You've got two entire fleets of ships for the Commonwealth and the Enlightened. You've got all the custom dice, you've got all the tokens, you've got your rule book, you've got a small campaign book with some special theme scenarios, hunting for the Prometheus, the special ship that was stolen. And really just about everything you need to play. The only things you need to supply for yourself are a table, maybe with some sort of a covering, a little bit of terrain. And this is sort of the important point that catches some people off guard. There are no stat cards in there. This is intended to be a living game, so what you want to do is go to dystopianwars.com, click on Factions, pick your faction, and that's where you can download your stat cards and your Orbat, which is the Order of Battle document, and that essentially is the master document for your fleet that tells you how you can build your ships, what your options are, things like that. These are not printed in the box because they're going to change periodically in balance updates, or when new ship classes come out, so you should expect that you're going to print those out. Note that the cards are not technically necessary because all the stats that are on the card are also in the Orbat, but they are a little bit convenient if you want to print those out and sleeve them or laminate them or something like that. Before we get into covering the rules, I'd like to walk you real quick through the stats on the card. The stats are arranged in a ship's wheel on the right of the card. So starting from 1 o'clock and going forward, your speed is how fast the ship moves in inches. Your hull is how many points of damage the ship can take before it flips over to the crippled side and then when you get to the, the hull on there to sink. Your mass is the size of the ship. This controls how far the ship drifts when it's moving and it's also used to control blocking line of sight. A larger ship can be seen over a smaller ship, so a mass 2 does not block line of sight to a mass 3. The citadel is kind of your critical rating. If you get that many hits or more, your ship will take critical damage. The armor is how many hits you have to take to lose a point of hull. The turn limit is how many turns you can make around the turning template. We'll cover that again in the rules section. The fray is how many dice you have to attack in a boarding action. And then your defense has two numbers. There's some little stylized waves there. The number above the waves is your aerial defense. This is used to defend against rockets and incoming fighter planes, things like that. The number below the waves is your submerged defense. This is used to defend against things like torpedoes, things that attack you from under the water. So next, I'd like to go over a brief overview of the rules, how the game works. This is not intended to be in great detail and and cover every single minor point. More, it's just to give you an idea of how things work. It's aimed at new players, people that may or may not have played the old game, or maybe even haven't played a naval game before. So I'm hoping that by listening to this, you can get an idea of how it runs and whether it sounds like the sort of thing that would appeal to you. So starting out, each player is going to construct their force according to the Orbat or Order of Battle document for your faction. This is basically the master document for each faction, and you can always download the latest version from dystopianwars.com, click on Factions, the faction you want, and there will be a link there that you can get your orb at. This tells you for all your ships uh, how many points they cost, what customization options there are, and all that sort of information. Your fleet is built out of building blocks called battle fleets, where a battle fleet is a single flagship that's a large size ship such as a battleship, dreadnought, fleet carrier, something like that, generally between zero to four supporting units of ships. Smaller ships come in different size units. A cruiser typically is one to three. Frigates are typically three to six, but these can vary. So check your document. Once you've built your force to the point size you want to do, then you're ready to set up your game. Normally a four by four is kind of the standard size table. You can use a smaller table for small engagements. Or something bigger like a 4x6 in a larger game. Eventually it sounds like 1,500 points is probably going to be kind of the default game size. So at the start of the game you've got all your ships there and you're also going to have a deck of cards known as the Victory and Valor cards. This is a 60 card deck. It's kind of similar to the ones in the old game but they're different and have multiple functions. So if we look at a card there are three things on it. There's a number up in the corner which is used for initiative. Higher numbers beat lower numbers to go first. The valor side is similar to the cards in older editions. It's some sort of useful effect that you can play that takes place immediately. So for example, you may play a card that lets your ships move faster or shoot better, repair damage or fix a critical effect, Things like that. There's even cards in there that let you take another activation and do two units of ships back to back. The victory side is kind of two parts. It gives you a condition that you have to achieve and then a victory point bonus if you manage to achieve that goal. So an example there might say something like destroy an enemy unit in a shooting attack and get one victory point. So the intention is you take your activation You shoot or do whatever it says, and if you achieve that goal, you can then play the card to get the VP bonus. The other sources of victory points in the game are from sinking enemy units in general, scenario goals, which will vary according to the scenario you're playing. There are six in the core set, and probably more will come out later, or people may make their own homebrew scenarios. There's also a booklet with some custom scenarios, uh, sort of a a storyline for the recovery of the Prometheus that the set's themed around. And finally there's a bonus if you sink the entire enemy fleet. You get an extra 5 victory points for that. Games are usually 5 turns, although this may vary by scenario, and at the end of that time or when one side's been completely sunk, then you'll go and tally up the points, see who's won. So getting back to the game, at the start, you've got your ships in your deck, deck shuffled up, you flip over the first card of your deck to see who starts deploying first. The higher value has the initiative. And this is done in an alternating unit fashion. So I'll place a unit of ships, you place a unit of ships, and back and forth until they've all been deployed on the table. This scenario will specify what your deployment zones look like. Don't forget that uh, you're going to want a little bit of terrain here. Usually a, a blue cloth or mat does pretty well. And anything that you would use as a hill in a typical 28 millimeter game will probably work well as an island. You're going to need some of these on the table so that your ships have a little bit more ability to maneuver around. They can hide out of line of sight or plan to go around a piece of terrain in order to flank the opponent, something like that. Uh, I do not recommend playing with just an empty table, it's going to take a lot of the strategy out of the game with the maneuvering. And maneuvering is extremely important in naval games. Once you've deployed, you're ready to start the first turn. At the beginning of the turn, there's an initiative phase. For the first turn, whoever had initiative in deployment will have initiative for the first turn as well. But in future turns, you will do this by bidding your Victory and Valor cards. So you have a hand of these cards, usually about five or so. It depends on the number of points in the engagement. You'll always have the same size hand. You don't lose them as your sips get destroyed, as you did in the older game. Each player will bid a card face down, reveal them, and the higher number gets initiative. You do have the option to not bid a card. If you do this, your opponent is allowed to change their card out or decide not to bid either. You might do this if you just don't care who goes first or if you feel that all your cards are really valuable and, and you really, really need them. Whoever gets the initiative can either go first or they can hold their nerve, which means that they let your their opponent go first and they get to draw a bonus card from their deck. So this is a nice option if it's unimportant who goes first. Next you take turns activating your units in an alternating unit fashion. So. If I'm going first, I'll pick one unit that hasn't activated yet this turn. First, they can do any special operations, launch SRS tokens, which is like planes off of a carrier or whales if you're the Enlightened. And there's also the ability to bring in ships from reserve, which we're not really going to cover much of here, but it's possible to have ships in reserve to deploy later. Next, you go on to movement. First, the ship will drift forward a number of Inches equal to its mass. So that's one inch for frigates, two for cruisers, three for a battleship. And this is meant to reflect the fact that large naval ships cannot change direction abruptly like in a land skirmish game. So they have a a certain amount of momentum going forward. After that, you've got a speed in inches, and there's another stat called the turn limit. This controls how tightly your ships can maneuver. So small ships can make a lot of turns. There's a turning template, and each step around the circle is one inch of movement and one towards your turn limit. I think each step is somewhere around uh, 10 to 15 degrees. I haven't really looked at it. Anyway, you can mix these up any way you want. You can move a couple inches, turn right, move a couple more inches, turn left, use them as you wish, but keep in mind that small ships can maneuver a good bit, and large ships can only make maybe a few turns and so they're mostly going to be heading in the same direction over time. You know Their movements are more predictable. And in general, you're going to want to think about your movement further ahead than you would in a land game. This is part of the pace of a naval game. You have a little bit more idea of what's coming in the future. Once you've moved all the ships in your unit, you go on to the shooting phase. You have to declare all of your targets before firing your weapons. However, there is a provision that if your declared target is destroyed, you can retarget those attacks to another enemy ship within five inches. And this is mainly a streamlining. So if you didn't have that, you would have to think a lot about how many shots do I think it will take to sink this ship because you don't want to waste extra shots, you know, firing more shots at a target that's no longer there. This way it lets you declare all the shots against one ship in an enemy unit, and then when he dies you move on to the next one and the next one. You don't have to do it that way. If your goal is mainly to cripple ships and not sink them, you may still decide to distribute them out kind of in a more manual fashion. And you can take your shots in whatever order you want. The way the combat occurs, each weapon has a firing arc Of which directions it can shoot. These are 90 degrees each. There's a front arc, a back arc, left and right. In naval terminology these are called fore, aft, port, and starboard. You won't have to worry too much about remembering those, but uh, port is left, starboard is right. Usually weapons are kind of mirrored equally left and right, but in case you need to remember the difference, Port is left because port has four letters and left has four letters. Now Weapons also have different range bands. From 0 to 10 inches is point blank, from 10 to 20 is closing, and from 20 to 30 is long. A few weapons have a special trait that lets them fire out to 40, but that's just on a few. Now if you look at your stat card, I'm going to use for example here a heavy gun battery. If it is at closing range, the 10 to 20, it says 10 parentheses 5. That means I get 10 attack dice if I am leading with this weapon or firing it by itself. And I get 5 attack dice if I am linking it in with another weapon. So why would you want to do this? With two heavy gun batteries, I could have had 20 dice, but why would I want 15 linking them together? The reason is that the combat is based on counting up a number of hits and reaching certain thresholds. So you're going to roll your dice, see how many hits you got, and compare it against the target's armor and citadel rating. Citadel used to be called their critical rating in the old game. If you get enough hits to meet or exceed their armor, you do a point of damage. If you get enough hits to meet or exceed their citadel, you give them a Disorder token, and they'll roll a critical die. Some part of their ship has been disabled by the attack. Note that when you're getting to their critical, you've also at least gotten to their armor. Armor's always lower, so you're doing regular damage as well. Now, if you meet or exceed double their armor, you do two points. Triple their armor, you do three points, so on. If you get to double or more of their Citadel, then instead of rolling a critical effect, you'll do two points of damage and that does not keep going up. Each ship has a hull rating, so when you've taken a number of points of damage equal to your hull, the ship will become crippled. You flip the stat card over, and there's new stats on the back side. Several of your traits are going to be lower now, and your weapons are all going to do less damage now. There's also a hull rating on the crippled side, so once you've received enough points of damage to get to that number, then the ship gets sunk. Weapons will also have some keywords on them for any sort of special effects. And these are covered on the cheat sheet document that you can download. The keywords also matter for linking weapons. You can only link weapons together if they have identical keywords. So I can link a heavy gun battery with a gun battery because they both have the same keywords. They're both the same basic type of weapon. But I can't link them together with a torpedo. That's a different kind of weapon. It doesn't have the same traits. It's also a little bit of a comparison point between ships. Ships that have several of the similar type weapons have a greater flexibility in linking fire than ships that have different kinds of weapons that are dissimilar. You can link weapons with your own ship, and you can also link weapons with other ships in your unit. So you've chosen your target, you've checked the range, you're in firing arc... You go ahead and shoot. This game uses custom six-sided dice that have a blank side, a block, a double block, a hit, a double hit, and an exploding hit. The blocks are used for repairs and defensive things that we'll talk about later. So the exploding hit counts as two hits just like the double, but then you also get another attack die. So you get to roll that. If it's an exploding hit again, then you keep going until you run out of exploding hits. This is the same mechanic that the old games were based on from Spartan. So what this does is it means that even a small attack does have a small chance of doing damage against bigger ships. It kind of takes the place of a critical hit mechanic in some other games, you know, where you roll a natural 20 or whatever and you manage you know, to do extra damage or special effects. Once you've completed all your shooting, you go into the assault phase, which I won't cover too much in here, but this is a boarding assault. So you're, you're up at close range, and maybe you've got a bunch of soldiers with jetpacks or something like that. It's four inches that they can try to board and attack another ship. It's not nearly as prominent as shooting, which is why we're glossing it over a little bit. Then after all squadrons have gone, after my unit's gone, then my opponent activates a unit. I activate a unit back and forth until every unit has activated and then you go to the end of the turn. Here is where you do resolution of your SRS attacks, the planes you've launched off of your carriers and things like that. They'll go ahead and do their attacks. Then you go on to repairs. If your ship has critical effects or disorder tokens on them, you can roll an action die. You get one die per the mass of your ship. So one for frigates, two for cruisers, three for battleships. And for each shield you roll, you can remove one of those different effects, you know, to fix the ship. If you're unable to repair a certain critical effect, but you still want it to be gone, you can do a jury rig repair where you take a point of damage and you get to remove that effect. Then you get to discard any cards from your hand that you don't want and draw back up to your hand size. What I generally recommend is that you usually want to discard most of your cards. If you didn't use them last turn, if they weren't useful then, most of the time they won't be useful on the coming turn either. There may be exceptions, but it's kind of a good rule of thumb if you're not sure what to do. You might keep a card if you know that there's a specific use you have intended for it, or you may also want to keep a card that has a really high initiative number on it if you want the chance to go first. But otherwise, if it doesn't have something important, go ahead and get rid of it and hopefully draw something better. All right, that's kind of the all I wanted to cover with the rules overview. Again, this is not covering every single detail, but it should be enough to give you a pretty good idea how the game runs. So let's say you're convinced you want to get into this game. You pick up your box set, you open it up, and you discover that the ship parts are all on sprues, and you have to make choices about how you're going to build them because you, you can't build every single class you know in numbers. So let's talk about what kind of choices you need to make and some of my recommendations or guidelines about how you might want to build your ships. We're gonna start off here with the Russian Commonwealth. So there's not a lot of decisions that you have to make if you're playing the Russians. They only have one frigate type, so all your frigates are gonna be built as Ruriks. And you don't have to make any choices with your battleship either. They do have two classes. There's the Borodino, and then there's a special named variant, but they're the same. You don't have to make any changes to how the ship looks. The special version does have different turrets, but the turrets are not permanently attached anyway. There's a socket with a hole, and the turrets have pegs in them. So when you get ready for a game, you're going to insert your turrets, and they'll stay in there pretty well, and you're good to go. There's no need to try to glue them in place, and I don't really think there's any reason to magnetize them either, although you're free to do as you like. But you will have to make some choices with the cruisers. So with the Russian fleet, you are going to get five cruiser hulls, and there's four different types of cruisers you can build with them. They all share a common central hull section, and there's different front and rears so there's a long and a short front deck and there's a long and a short back deck thus making four different combinations now if you're one of those guys who magnetizes everything with work you can probably try and magnetize these as well but for now we're going to assume that you're going to be gluing them together first 410 points is the norilsk heavy cruiser which features front and rear heavy gun batteries, a bigger broadsides, and an extra small gun battery in the front. At 85 points is the Kutsov Cruiser. This is your basic cruiser class. It also has a front and rear heavy gun battery and just regular size broadsides. You have the Oleg Monitor for 60 points. The monitor is kind of a, a slower lighter armed, but equal durability cruiser. It has just a single heavy gun battery in the front and a broadside. So there's no rear battery. And finally, you have the Sinius Fast Cruiser. This is 85 points, the same as the Kutzov, and it has a heavy gun battery, a regular gun battery, and a regular broadside. What distinguishes the Sinius is it's one inch faster than the standard Kutsov cruiser, and it also has the Vanguard special rule, which means that at the beginning of the game, after both sides are deployed but before the first turn, it can make a free move of up to five inches. So this will let it kind of get into a good position or start heading for a scoring zone. Because the mechanics of combat allow you to link weapons together, It's generally beneficial to have squadrons with multiple ships in them rather than a lot of singles. It's not the end of the world if you have some singles in there. It's useful to have some options for linking because you don't know what's going to happen in the game, what kind of targets may present themselves, and you may also need to compensate for the way your weapons become weaker once the ship is crippled. Now, when I built my set, I did one Nurelsk heavy cruiser, two Kutsov's, and two Olegs. I'm not a big fan at this time of the Sinius. You're getting a substantial reduction in firepower compared to the Kutsov at the same point level and it's only one inch faster. And for me that's kind of the clincher. If, if I'm going to be paying the same points for less weapons I feel like I'm not quite getting my value out of the extra speed at this point. Now what I do want to say is that this is very early in the game and as there's more ships and the size of games and the skill level increases the extra speed may turn out to be of more benefit plus the free vanguard move is something you don't want to overlook but those are going to mainly be useful for objective scoring and in the beginning when we're all mainly playing you know smaller simpler games maybe not even running scenarios yet because we're still getting used to the mechanics that may not be as great a value as having an, an extra gun. So that's why I didn't end up building any Cineas with my initial set. I am planning on picking up some more Russian cruiser hulls later to beef up my force, as that's one of the factions I want to play. Anyhow, by having two Kutsovs and two Olegs, it gives me some linking options. But you may also want to consider doing two of one class and three of another And I don't think there's really any wrong way to do it here. You can take any of these classes to be the two and one to be the three, and you're going to be fine. Kutsov's and Norilsk's can run in units of one to three. The Oleg monitors can actually run in a unit of one to four. The big benefit of the Olegs is that you're getting the most durability per point. They're tough little ships. They have exactly the same hull as Kutsov's and pretty much the same level of durability. They're the same armor, and only one less citadel. If you're looking for staying power, this is a ship that may be able to take the scoring role for you, to come up there and just be annoying enough to get rid of, because it it takes more firepower than the thing is worth. But it's not going to get there quickly, because it's a speed 8, where the Kutsav is a speed 9, and the Sineas is a speed 10 could depend on the scenario you're expecting to play. If this is a scenario that mostly scores later instead of early, that might not be a big deal. The Oleg, since it just has the single gun battery in the front, it's a 270-degree turret, it probably also has the most freedom in what direction it can go. It can sail almost anywhere and still be shooting at something, where the ships that have fore and aft turrets they are going to tend to want to turn sideways to be able to bring both guns to bear so that they have a 90-degree side arc that they can concentrate all their firepower, although they may sometimes be shooting at different targets and have the freedom to maneuver and shoot at one guy in the front and one guy in the back. I've personally kind of been preferring the Kudsovs, as they're a nice moderate cost. They have dual guns. They have pretty good durability. And when I add more ships, I think the next thing I'm going to do is build one more Norilsk, and one more Kudsov, so that I can run some of those squads and just kind of play with some different things, you know, and decide over time how I want to build things out. Most likely I'll keep some balance between the three classes, and what I may do is hold a couple of holes in reserve for my second box set, and decide later if I want to build those as, as the Cineus or something else. One thing you should be aware of in terms of the game is that the Orbat is intended to be a living document. That's why this stuff is not in the box set. There's no printed cards or printed Orbat because to keep adding to the game and also to adjust the game balance, they will be re-releasing updated versions periodically. So we might see a change where the, the Senia suddenly looks more attractive. For example, the first version of the Orbat did not have the Vanguard special move at the beginning of the game. I think that World Cradle recognized that it was not a, a popular ship at that point and decided that it needed a little bit of something extra. So they put that in there. Okay, so next, let's talk about the Enlightened ships. How are you going to build these? You've got two flagship-type ships with, again, no permanent decisions that you have to make. They have drop-in turret spots, drop-in generator spots, so they are going to be free to change however you need them to. The Enlightened have two different frigate classes, one with a longer-range weapon and one with a shorter range but higher-damage weapon. However, don't have to make any decisions here either. They take a drop-in ball-style turret that goes into a socket It's extremely secure, even more secure than on the Russian ships with with the peg and socket arrangement. So you don't have to do anything with that either. Once again, it's just the cruisers that you need to deal with. However, in this case, you only have three cruisers because you're getting two big ships instead of one, as per the Russians. With three cruisers, your decisions of how to build them take on a little bit more significance. What I do want to remind you, though, is that For casual play, you should always feel free to proxy them. Just tell your opponent what they're going to be. In my case, I built three different classes because I'm not planning on playing Enlightened as one of my main factions. I'm just going to really be using them for demos. And I wanted to kind of showcase some of the different visual variety that you can get. So what I did is I wanted to build one of the heavier cruisers that has the, the giant laser on top one that had the SRS, that there's a tiny deck with just one airplane it can launch, and then one sort of standard cruiser. So I'm showing the kind of the broader array of the three main looks that you can get out of. But when I actually play, I'll proxy them as whatever. So for the Enlightened, there are actually six different cruiser classes, but It's not as much as it looks. There's kind of pairs of sister classes for these. First up, you have the Antarctica Superiority Cruiser. This is your most expensive option at 155 points. Then you have the Copernicus Heavy Cruiser for 133, and these two classes are extremely similar. Both of them feature the heavy particle cannon that fires to the front. This is the giant eyeball laser that sits up on top, and it is really, really sweet. The Antarctica is slightly more durable, with an extra point of hull, and there are some minor differences as well in their other weapons. Generally, the Antarctica, being the more expensive version, has a a little bit more guns, but they're pretty close. The Antarctica also links a little bit better. It has a pair of particle beamers, where the Copernicus has a particle beamer and an etheric lance. In order to link two weapons, those weapons have to have the exact same keywords. So what this means is that when you have a ship whose weapons are generally of the same type, you get a little bit more flexibility about how you want to use those weapons, because you have a linking option you would not have if they had two weapons and they were of different types. I would generally feel like it's good to build one of these two, and they're big enough that they can sort of operate on their own. They're tough, and all of the cruiser classes here have built-in shield generators which further increase their durability. So they're not going to go down as easy as cruisers of a lot of other factions. In general, you can kind of say that they're, they're a high-tech faction. They're also sort of an elite faction. And that's why their things tend to cost a little bit more. 155 is a lot more than the 110 for the biggest cruiser class that the Russians have got. Second... You've got the two classes with SRS, the 114-point Ulysses Vanguard Cruiser and the 95-point Châtelet Recon Cruiser. Now, these I'm going to recommend that you might not want to build out of the box set. The reason for that is how SRS tokens work. You know, so you launch your planes, you get two dice per plane, and we've already discussed how the threshold mechanic works you need to get enough hits in order to meet an armor or citadel rating to do damage and if you're only launching one plane and it's got two dice that's really not enough to hurt anything even if you make a squad of two you've got four dice still insufficient i probably would not field carriers until you get to the point where you're having at least like four planes which is eight dice and I'd kind of prefer to have more than that. Now you can combine these with your whales. So if you're planning on running the Whale Carrier, you can run these cruisers and add that airplane onto the other SRS, but it still seems to me a little bit less flexible. Again, it's it's up to you and you can proxy them as you wish, but I probably wouldn't build one of those for a competitive force. Finally, you have the Loveless Cruiser at 90. This should be viewed as the standard basic cruiser for the Enlightened. And you have the 74-point Stiletto Fast Cruiser. Both of these seem like they're worthwhile options. Personally, I really like the Loveless. It's nice to have a lower-cost option in a fleet full of elites that you, know, you can beef up your numbers a little bit. And it's got decent weaponry and all that kind of thing without breaking the bank. The Stiletto Fast Cruiser. The Stiletto Fast Cruiser is kind of worth a look as well. It's not really a sister class to the Loveless, though. There's quite a few differences there. In terms of looking at this as a comparison to the Russian's Cineus, the Stiletto is a bit more attractive because it's two extra inches of movement, but it lacks the free move at the beginning of the game. It's also got one more turn limit. It has fairly similar weapons, a little bit less linkable because it replaces a Particle Beamer with the Etheric Lance. But the main thing that makes it cost less is it has lighter armor and citadel. The Loveless being a 510 and this one being a 4.8. That kind of makes me favor the Loveless as the more standard class. I think probably my recommendation to a lot of people would be to build maybe a pair of Lovelace, and then one of the Antarctica or Copernicus. But there's nothing wrong with building three of a kind if you'd rather do that. But I think that's a good basic kind of meat and potatoes arrangement that'll give you broadly useful classes of ships. When I was covering the game overview, I kind of briefly touched on ship customization. So let's go a little bit more into that. For our example, I'm going to be looking at the Borodino battleship, which is a Russian ship for the Commonwealth faction. It has a base cost of 215 points and it carries three heavy gun batteries for its default armament. So you can customize this ship in several ways. First, you can replace one or more of the turrets, the heavy gun battery turrets, with a different weapon. And the way you find out about your customization options is to look at your ORBAT. So it'll say here that you can replace these with a heavy rocket battery or the tri-rail gun. The heavy rocket battery is free. It's the same value as the heavy gun battery. If you take the tri-rail gun, it says that costs plus 12 points. Now typically, if you do make a customization change like this, you have to make the same change to all of the ships in that unit. A battleship is in a unit by itself, but if you were doing a customization on a group of cruisers, and you replaced the front gun battery with rockets, you would have to replace all three of them with rockets. The next option you have is to replace a turret with a generator. So a generator is kind of one of those mad science things that's in the game that has some sort of special effect. And there's a list here of specifically which generators you can put onto the Borodino battleship, as well as how many points each one costs. Let's talk a little bit about the different kinds of generators that are available. So the Borodino for five points can get an atomic generator. The atomic generator gives you plus two speed and plus one citadel for three points. You can get the fury generator. The Fury Generator also gives you plus two speed, does not affect your Citadel. Instead, it gives you a bonus to boarding assaults. You can get a Shield Generator for five points. A Shield Generator means that whenever your opponent is shooting at this ship, it has to remove two dice from its attack pool, so their attacks are a little bit weaker. For five points, you can get the Repulsion Generator. This makes your ship levitate, basically. You can go over terrain, You can even sit on terrain at the end of your movement. The downside is that if the generator ever gets destroyed or disabled, your ship will fall and instantly die. So be careful about that. But uh, it it will give you a hover ship. The magnetic generator is a free option, and it helps protect you from small arms fire and things like that, such as what an SRS token would generate. And finally, the shroud generator is 8 points. A shroud generator kind of makes smoke or mist or something like that. It helps conceal your ship and make it harder to shoot at. The gameplay effect is that exploding hits no longer explode. They just count for two hits. Finally, this is only available on flagships. You can take escorts or corvettes. There are not models or tokens for these yet in the game. They're coming. But these are, are very small ships, smaller than a frigate, that Go along with your flagship and help protect it, giving it you know, some defensive bonuses, or in the case of the Corvette also giving you a boarding assault bonus. Now in addition to the six generator types we talked about there, there are some special generator types which are faction specific or possibly nation specific. You know, we, we don't know yet, we gotta see when more nations come out. But we'll talk about the ones that are defined right now. The Russians in the Commonwealth are the only ones who have access to the Cryo Generator. This is basically a generator that creates icebergs. It shoots a freeze ray out into the water and makes an iceberg appear there, which is a piece of permanent terrain that stays on the table. And you roll one action die to see how effective it is. It'll tell you how big the iceberg is and how far away you can place it. The Enlightened have two special generator types available to them. The null generator disables generators on enemy ships and the clone generator duplicates the effect of other generators which can be either friendly or enemy. We've also seen in a preview for the Crown faction, they have a special type called the guardian generator. And what this is is kind of a it's kind of a bubble of protection concept. So If there is a friendly ship with a shield generator within 5 inches, then your Guardian Generator will give you a partial shield. Instead of giving you a 2 die reduction on enemy attacks, it gives you a 1 die reduction. However the effects do stack, so if you have both a shield and a Guardian Generator, then enemy ships are getting a total of a minus 3, which is a pretty good amount of protection. The Imperium has something called the Storm Generator, which is actually quite good. It gives you an electrical attack, somewhat short-range. It only goes to 15 inches. And also, when you fire this, I guess because it's summoning an electrical storm, it basically makes clouds around your ship and gives it the obscured trait, just like the Shroud Generator does. One key thing to keep in mind, though, is that you only get the obscured if you fire the gun. And if you don't have a target in range, you can't fire it. So your ship is not going to be concealed on the approach. Some ships may have special customization that is specific to them. The example we've seen of that so far is for the Union. They have the option to take what's called the Akron Observation Rotor. If they do this, it's basically a kind of a little drone or something that follows along with that unit. It gives them a defense bonus against incoming aerial attacks and also extends the range of that unit's weapons. you know it kind of acts as a spotter for them. That's something pretty interesting and I'm hoping that future fleets will see some more special customization like that. The purium on their ships that can equip a bombard, have a special option that they can take phosphorus rounds for that bombard so that uh, when they hit enemy ships, it causes extra fire damage. Okay, that pretty much wraps up the customization that I wanted to talk about, and we'll go ahead and move on to the next topic. So now let's talk about how ships will be released going forward, as I think this is important to understand so that you can plan ahead. There's going to be battle fleet boxes, and there's going to be Squadron boxes, Each battle fleet box will contain a single large ship, typically made of resin. This is going to be something like a battleship, a fleet carrier, a dreadnought, something else that's big. And then it's going to have a couple of sprues with medium and small ships. So those are going to be your cruiser hulls and your frigate hulls. And the examples we've seen have all had two sprues. Most of the time, a sprue will contain one cruiser and two frigates. When we get into other kinds of boxes, they may be other types of ships there, but probably in similar sizes and numbers. The last thing that I'd like to talk about today is War Cradle just posted a blog update that covers the new Chinese fleet that's going to be coming out. This is the Ningqing Battle Fleet set. And they show in the article first two different flagships. You have the Ningjing class battleship and the Yangtze class battleship. The difference here, the Ningjing has three turrets on it, two facing forward and one facing back. This is kind of your basic combat class battleship. The Yangtze has just a single backwards facing turret. You're exchanging the two front turrets for a long range bombard plus and expanded logistics and tactical support. So, what we've seen in the Prussian Imperium ships is this is probably going to mean that you get to draw extra cards or possibly exchange cards or peek at cards and put them on the bottom of your deck or something like that. It's going to give you a card advantage. Because the ship is not as well armed. That's why the armament it does have is primarily the long-range bombard. The Yangtze is going to be intended to stay in the back, where it's providing its support, but can still fire with the bombard cannons, which will most likely have the rule that gives them extended range out to 40 inches. Both versions also have a close-range weapon on the front, something called the Heavy Prow Huokyang. I don't speak Chinese. I'm going to do my best. But... This is the first weapon we're seeing that probably uses the torrent template. It's a big plastic flamethrower kind of thing that will hit all ships under the template. So if you can get in range and the right angle, you can potentially wipe out a whole bunch of frigates or damage an entire squad of cruisers or something like that uh, in one shot of this weapon. I'm really excited to see what it does and what sort of special weapon keywords that it might have with it. The article shows some pictures of the sprues, so you can see what kind of uh, options are in there. There's the regular six generators, the basic six types. There are no pictures of any special generators, so I'm assuming that they don't have any at this time. Next, it has pictures of the four different cruiser classes, so let's go over these. There's the Jiang class, which is the standard cruiser, the Meru heavy cruiser, the Tao light cruiser, And the Wusong Monitor. So they are kind of like the Russians, a fore and aft turret fleet. You'll see that the the Jiang has a front turret and a back turret. It also has a front weapon that looks like a smaller version of the flamethrower thing that's on the big ships. I'm not going to expect a torrent template on a ship of this size though. It's probably just a a single shot weapon. We see a little bit of broadsides here and While they do have some small paddle wheels on the side, I don't know if it's enough that they're going to get the kind of uh, paddle wheel special rule that that the Union has. I know we haven't talked about Union yet. We're going to cover them in the next episode. Now, the heavy cruiser, the Meru-class, it's a a longer ship, still has the front and back turrets, still has the front gun, but it adds what looks like a rocket in the front, probably a 270-degree firing rocket because there's a shroud covering the back side of the rocket turret. I think we're going to see that the Chinese put a lot of emphasis on their rockets. Looking at the Dow class light cruiser, it has the same long front as the Meru, but it has a short back, so there's no rear turret anymore. It's got the front turret, the rockets, and the front gun. And I think this is going to be a fairly popular class. Anything that puts the guns forward instead of back is a little bit easier for people to drive around the table. So you'll probably see a lot of those around. And then finally the Wusong class monitor. So if we're using the Russian monitor as an example, it's probably going to be slower than the other ships. It's got the front turret and the front firing gun but without the rockets and without the back gun. Still, it's probably going to be a budget option. It'll be the least points of any of these, and so that brings some benefit. Finally, down at the bottom, we see the Shanghai-class frigate. Now, this is interesting because most frigates have their light broadsides, and this one looks like it does as well, plus some sort of front turret. But all the other frigates we've seen for the other factions have been standard front turrets, regular kind of weapons. And this ship is using rockets for its weapon. So that's pretty interesting. And I'm wondering what effects there may be on this rocket that are going to make it attractive. Uh, We'll have to wait until the mini-Orbat comes out for them. And then the bottom of the blog kind of has a teaser down here where it shows the Tianlong Draconic Colossus. It is a giant flying robo-dragon with jetpacks that help it fly and some sort of giant gun in its mouth. Actually, it looks like there's a choice. It shows a standard head with a pretty wide-barreled weapon, and then an alternate head with a longer but more narrow-barreled weapon. There's also an alternate tail, so it may have some sort of rear weapon that it it can change out with two different options as well. It looks pretty cool. It's probably going to be really big and imposing on the table, but we, we already know the intention is they want to get the basic naval classes out first before putting out some of the more weird science things. And we may even see some flying options like, like bombers and stuff like that before we get into special models. But they just posted this up, and I wanted to get it in the episode so you can take a look at this. So if, if you want to read this as well as their earlier blogs, go to blog.warcradle.com, and from there you can click on the different ones. This is uh, Diary number 40, that we're looking at which covers the chinese so i think that's all for today in the next episode of dystopian academy we'll be talking about the imperium ships talk about faction play styles more news as it comes out and start discussing more about basic strategy if you're ever in the atlanta area come and join us at gigabytes gaming cafe in marietta georgia we meet there on thursday nights. You can also join our Facebook group, North Georgia Dystopian Wars, to keep informed about any events we may run in the future. Thank you, and I hope to see you again for the next episode of Dystopian Academy.